Welcome to Exploration Radio. My name is Ahmad. Our guest today is Paul Rules. Paul is an AFL or Australian Rules football icon. He played 17 years for the Fitzroy and Sydney football clubs. In his prime, Paul was rated as the best footballer in Australia and he's been inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame. After finishing his playing career, Paul went on to become a successful coach. He became the head coach of first the Sydney Swans and then the Melbourne Demons Football Club. In his tenure at Sydney, the club won its first premiership in 72 years and has since become one of the most dominant football clubs in Australia. At Melbourne, Paul was part of the management team that revived a once-struggling football club, leading a complete overhaul of the culture and initiated a successful succession plan that culminated in the club winning its first premiership in 57 years in 2021. I met Paul three years ago while attending a conference. He was talking about leadership and how to build a successful team culture. What struck me was the simplicity of his message. I never played AFL or Australian rules, but I saw many parallels in what he was advocating for and what I had often struggled with in my career with respect to the culture that I experienced in many of the organizations I worked in. Frankly, the only time those companies had any sort of culture was when someone left yogurt in the fridge too long. It's just something we didn't focus on. That meeting with Paul has spurred a nearly three year long conversation with him about what leadership means to him, how one can manage a high performing team, and how to build an ingrained team culture. This episode is a small snippet of what I've learned from Paul. If you're interested in learning more, I highly recommend checking out Paul's LinkedIn profile and his weekly series, The Culture Couch. His consulting company, Performance by Design, has a really nice quote as part of their marketing pitch. Don't leave culture to chance. I like that. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to our podcast, Paul. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. For those of our listeners that are maybe not that versed into who you are, can you just give us a short intro on who you are and how you got to where you are right now? Yeah, so I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and back then, um, you know, I'm born in 1963, played footy for Beverly Hills Footy Club. And back in those days, you were zoned to a certain footy club. So my my football club was Fitzroy. So I got invited down to Fitzroy as a, about a 15-year-old in the under-19s and then eventually made my debut in 1982 against the Sydney Swans, ironically. So played 13 seasons with Fitzroy and then went to Sydney and played the last four years for the Sydney Swans. And then in 2003, when Rodney Ede resigned, I, I took over the senior coaching role in mid-2002, sorry, um, and then for 10 weeks and then got the full-time job after that. Premiership 2005, which was amazing, first time in 72 years. And then I actually got... Yeah, asked to come out of sort of coaching retirement to, to coach the Melbourne Footy Club by Peter Jackson. So part of that role was to do a succession plan, of which Peter, myself, and Glenn Bartlett implemented that. We, we, we I got in there for three years, put Simon Goodwin in, and yeah, much to my pleasure, last year they won the premiership. So that's a, a sort of one minute, one minute and a half sort of synopsis of yeah, what I've been doing for the last forty years. So was it always going to be footy? I guess that's always a question I wanted to ask you. <laughs> it's funny, <laughs> my kids ask me that. I actually, uh, I played basketball and I, I my, my first passion was basketball. I loved basketball and I was really fortunate. I played for the Victorian state team in basketball, um, I think under 11s, 13s, 15s and 17s or something like that. And then I played in the under 17 Teal Cup Carnival. And, and then really, I, I didn't actually pick between basketball and football. I just got invited down to um, to play for, the, for Fitzroy 
And people will ask me, did you make the decision? No, because basketball at that time, you know, wasn't very big in Australia. I mean, you could go to the Olympics, but then to think that you're going to be one of the best, you know, 12, 15 people in Australia and given the opportunity in football. But I also went to Footscray Institute of Technology and did a PE course, but that only lasted three months. And my, ah. my boys just bagged me about that. And so by the time I sort of arrived in Detroit, you know, I was working at the AMP and I always worked because we were semi-professional back then when, we, when I started. So I worked at the AMP, I then went into sales. So I was working up until I left um, Melbourne to go to Sydney in 1990, end of 94. So did I always want to be a footballer? It's probably more that that's just what happened back then. You got in, we we're really lucky. I, I think the system that we're in is far better system than what it is now, where you draft maybe 70 kids from all over Australia. You know, we had, yeah, I had sort of 50 kids go down to Fitzroy from the zone, the city zone and the country zone. Multiply that by 12 mm-hmm. in the Victorian footy league. Yet 600 kids had an opportunity to get access to an AFL footy team, you know, every year. Much better system. So the answer to the question, the question is I probably just lived life. And, and I was fortunate to be good enough to play footy and work at the same time and and had a 17-season career, really. It's interesting you say about, you know, the, the old system versus the new system. I guess one of the things I, I find fascinating as you kind of look into ex-players, particularly in the uh, AFL system, there was probably a better balance between you playing footy as well as having a life outside of footy as well. And so it probably made you a little bit more successful when you finished as a football player as well because you had something else to kind of fall on whereas now i think like you have these 15 16 year old kids which are basically vetted to the football career has to kind of work out at all at all costs because the investment has been so big that when it doesn't work out you're kind of sitting there with having spent 10 years trying to work on something and then you know you got to reinvent yourself at at 25 or you know in your late 20s or something like that which is a probably a much harder challenge i would think yeah 100 percent, i agree i mean we, we sort of would train pre-season in the mornings at sort of 6.30 down at Kerford Road and then I'd head off to, initially it was school um, and then I'd go to the AMP sort of thing. So you did, you were able to gather skills outside of footy that complemented your footy and vice versa. Skills at football that complement your work. I mean, we had, yeah, we're cross-section of society. We had doctors, um, lawyers, um, you know, brickies labourers, you know, landscapers, all that. I mean, everyone pretty much worked up until, as I said, mid-90s. So, yeah, then the transition out of football for that era, most most people had a job. So it was like, well, footy career finished. Um, that's not that big a deal. And, in fact, it gave you more time because, my, you know, my day, as I said, let's say pre-season was get up at 6, drive to Kerford Road, train from 7, you know, to 8 o'clock in the morning, go to the AMP, work till 4 o'clock, go down to training at, at the Junction Oval, start training at 5, train till 8 o'clock at night, get home at 8.30, do it again the next day. So you're buying time when you finished your, your footy career normally, when you finished in the 80s, you know, early 90s sort of thing. Whereas now you've got all this time during the day because the players get so much time to themselves. I think they have a day and a half off a week, they have 12 weeks off a year, um, all those sorts of things. So it's, it's a dramatically different. So I think the clubs, yeah, trying to bridge the gap. So the clubs do a really good job of trying to get players, yeah, studying. You know, most players study or doing it doing a TAFE course or, or some, particularly some players towards the end of their career might utilise a sponsor, you know, go and work for a day, day and a half here, day and a half there. So it's certainly something clubs are really aware of, how, to, how do we upskill our players? And the majority of the time it's trying to get the young players that are drafted at 18 
into a university because if you yeah if you don't complete mm-hmm. it for six seven eight years it's not that big a deal while you're playing footy um or if you're unlucky to get the sack after two or three you've still got your university to fall back on um so there's certain That's ways right. you can bridge that gap but the the advantage that we had in that era was you're automatically working and you just transition straight into your job. Yeah, that's right. And so you had this uh, 16, 17 year uh, football career. Did you always want to get into coaching after? Like, was was that something you were always interested in? No, I, I didn't. It was funny. So the finished in 1998 and I didn't know why I did this, but I sat down at my desk at the end of 1998 and I realized there was a transition period for footy, as I said, like we've, we've gone from a semi-professional environment to full time. And I actually ended up writing the things I liked about my coaches and I didn't like about my coaches. And it, it turned out to be 25 points. And again, I, I just sort of did it because I wanted to write it through the eyes of a player. If I ever did become a coach or a leader, what was it like to be a player? I then went overseas for 99 and lived with uh, my wife, Tammy's family in Saratoga in California. But I was really fortunate. I, I didn't want to just have a holiday that year. And I was doing some work for Channel 7 at the time. Triple M also, so I had a media accreditation, but I also reached out to a lot of yeah, uh, NFL teams, NBA teams, went to the San Diego Chargers, Denver Broncos, LA Lakers, Chicago Bulls. So I did a fair bit of research in that particular time, which was really, really good. Came back, worked on the Olympics, which was pretty cool for, for C7. Um, and then I had an opportunity to join Sydney Swans full-time, I think at the end of 2000. And I became a full-time assistant coach. And even then I was like, all right, well, I'll get in as an assistant coach, see what it's like, see what it's something I want to do. And then bang, it sort of hit me because halfway through 2002, Rodney um, resigned. And then lo and behold, I was asked by the club to coach. So it probably wasn't until that particular time because I always thought I've got time to develop whether I want to do it, my strategies. And then it sort of hit me really quickly. So it probably wasn't until that time where I said, yeah, I'm, I'm really invested in this footy club. I really want to do it. And took the job for 10 weeks and then got the full-time job at the end of 2002. I have to find the right words to say this, but, you know, you did kind of fall into your full-time coach in, in a lot of ways as well. Yeah, you know, like, I'm, I'm not sure you would have foreseen, like, yeah, you know, the, the head coach quitting and you doing an interim role and then, yeah, you know, winning the players over and kind of stepping into that role. I'm not sure that was part of your plan. Uh, maybe it was. I'm, I'm not, I'm not it sure. Was, it was an unusual time, man. I mean, literally, I, I remember we got beaten by Geelong and I knew it was a bit uneasy at the footy club. And I remember sitting in my office Monday, you know, we had a bye week the following week. And then I got, I think, a phone call from Johnny Blakey, an old teammate. And he said to me, so I heard Rodney Eads going to resign. I'm like, nah, mate, that's not true. And then about 20 minutes later, Stephen Quartermain from Channel 10 rang me and said, Ruzi, just want a comment about Rodney Eads resigning. I'm saying... Yeah, I have to say this, this is probably like appropriate that people outside the organization know far earlier than people inside the organization. Well, what I was going to say is my office is next door to Rodney's. So he's in the next (laughs) office. And I'm getting phone calls. Johnny Blake is in Queensland and Stephen Quartermain's in Melbourne. So I got out of my chair, I walked into Rockets office. I said, mate, I said, I've just got two phone calls within the next half last half an hour. Are you giving it away? He said, yeah, and I'm resigning. So that's how I found out. So that's how quick it was. Then two days later, we had a meeting and Dennis Carroll was chairman of selectors and we met with the CEO and um, Cole Sear, I think it was, Steve Lawson was the footy manager. What are we going to do? And at some point, there's George, I think it was Steve Lawson, myself, and Johnny Longmore, I think, was, was there as well from time. Might have been Georgie Stone or Georgie Stone might have been left by that stage. So we're all in the room together and... We talked about at one stage just rotating the coaching or doing it, and then the club said, no, Ruzi, we want you to do it. So then over about 24 hours, I had to make the decision. 
And I realized, to your point, I've only got 10 weeks to go. This could be, this could hang my coaching career. I could never coach ever again if this 10 weeks doesn't go to plan. So it was a really big risk. And I asked the club whether I could have a longer contract. They said, no, you can't. And then there was all a controversy about Terry Wallace at the end of that season that they'd signed Terry Wallace yep. and he was going to come in. So it was a, yeah, it certainly wasn't a plan. It wasn't like I applied for the job and planned for it. It was sort of like, and then we, we won six out of our last 10 games and the last game of the year, the players sort of, I went down because of Paul Kelly and Andrew Dunkley's last game, which was great. We won it. And then to your point about the players, they, you know, we were celebrating and they jumped around me, jumped on top of me. And then, it was a big whirlwind push for me to be coach externally. And then I became coach for 2003. But yeah, it was a bit of a blur, to be honest, when it was happening. One thing I guess I always want to ask people is like, when you were playing footy, were you a, a thinking man type of player? Like, you know, did you did you interrogate the game to that level? Yeah, I think one of my strengths was I I was really knew the game pretty well. I think that was a real strength of, of mine. Um, I played basketball, as I said, and played tennis. And, you know, I, I was really interested in the technique of the game and learning and thinking and all those sorts of things. And I think as a player, I, I always tried to sort of say, well, the ball might go there and I'll go there. And if I can stand here, because yeah, you're playing against great players, you know, in, in any mm-hmm. era, but in the era of, you know, Stephen Kernahan and Dermot Brereton and uh, Terry Danaher and, and then later on Wayne Carey. And so I found myself, yeah, I was reasonably athletically gifted, but nowhere near what Wayne Carey was or some of the other players I played on. So you had to really think. So I think, yeah, I think my strength was to think through the game. Now, but you're never really thinking through. Mm-hmm. Probably wasn't to my last year, to be honest. I started thinking like a coach when I was. I was sort of, yeah, your body, yeah. your body can't do what your mind wants you to do. So you're getting a bit frustrated, and then you start to think, oh, what would I do in this situation? What would I do? You know, but probably for the first sixteen years, it was more about me as a player and how I can be the best player. Mm-hmm. And then the last year was probably more around what would I do in this scenario? And that's when the actual coaching mindset kicks in. The reason I asked that question is arguably when you started playing footy, you played in an era where I'm not sure it was as heavily coached as it is now. The systems and all these things are kind of drilled into players. So I so I always kind of look back and I think that there are players that obviously have the innate ability and you know they're just really good, but there's also the players that can kind of think their way through like brad gilbert a tennis player wrote this book called winning ugly which i think is one of the best books because you look at brad gilbert as a tennis player you know he was not a very good tennis player there was nothing in his repertoire as a tennis player that would say that he could be a professional tennis player yeah and that's what his book is about is like how do you kind of deconstruct the moments and figure out your opponent and kind of eke all of those little advantages and, and and get to that level um and that's just because he didn't have the like the physical or the athletic gift to kind of do it so he really had to kind of work out how he could do that I think Ash Barty's a great example. Now, I, I don't know Ash's athleticism. I, I'm sure she's a really good athlete, but I watch her play from a tennis point of view and I just see the way she navigates through a match. It's like amazing. And I think that's what Brad Gill is saying. Right. Like Ash has just got this ability to, to define the match and say, right, at this particular point in time, I'm just going to get the ball back and, oh, hang on, this player has gone to another level. I'm going to start hitting winners. And then all of a sudden, it's like a drop shot or whatever. I think Ash Barty is one of the most fascinating athletes I've seen because she epitomizes what you're talking about. She's mm-hmm. obviously super talented, but I think her ability to think through a match and execute a match, I think from a tennis point of view, is, is incredible. Like, And you're right. When I when I first started playing football, yeah, there wasn't a lot of tactics. Like Wolsey was a school teacher, you know. Like, and so he he didn't spend he had spent a lot more time 
yeah, you know, work. And then we came, he came to the training, we'd arrive at the training. We didn't have meetings, we didn't have really tactics. I mean, he started towards his credit, he started the kick out where we huddled in the middle, which was groundbreaking mm-hmm. at that particular stage. But a lot of it was about survival of the fittest. You know, we had 60 players turn up at pre-season training. We had another 40, whatever, on the under-19 list. So you had probably 100 players at the Fitzroy Footy Club. So ultimately, it was could you survive the system? And I think that lent itself to multiple types of players. You know, Bernie Quinlan was an incredible athlete, like an amazing athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then you had guys that were, you know, weren't great athletes but had an ability to to maximise their strength. And that's probably one of the things I learned as well. Don't always focus on people's weaknesses. Everyone's got weaknesses, but focus on their strength. I think mm-hmm. some of the players that have become some of the best players of all time, Greg Williams. Greg Williams, who won two Brownlow medals, got, I think, cut by two different teams. I mean, the reason he became a Brownlow medalist because he minimised his weaknesses. You know, yeah, he wasn't <laughs> That's quick. Right. And I'm not sure how fit he was in terms of his aerobic capacity. But his strengths were unbelievable. Like his ability to mm-hmm. get the ball off the ground and to outthink his opponent and to see where the ball was going. He's a great example as well of someone that just could think through the game incredibly. Two, you know, won two brown line medals. You're not talking about, you know, you're talking about Ash Barty and Greg Williams, two of the great sporting icons of AFL and tennis. And and again, I know more about Diesel's athleticism than, than Ash's, but what I'm saying is both had an incredible capacity to mm-hmm. understand what they're capable, but also dissect their opposition really, really well. That's you know, who am I playing on today? What do I have to do? What's the opposition? I remember playing, you know, when I played against Carlton, I'd play on Stephen Kernan, who was a superstar, and, and Sticks Kernan would lead. Diesel got the ball. He had the capacity to either see Stephen or not see Stephen, whereas a lot of other players, I just I just zone off them because I knew he's just going to kick it up in the air and kick the opposition. So, yeah, that that fear that that Diesel put in my mind as an opposition player probably extrapolated around the yeah the other eighteen players, other seventeen players on the ground. You know, we all felt the same mm-hmm. way. As soon as this guy gets the ball, and I'm sure a part of it is when you play Nash Barty, it's like, how am I going to beat this? If I do this, that's you know, right. that, you know it's incredible. In Brad's book, there was a line which I always quite like. He makes this point. He came to the realization that he never had to play as best as he could. He just had to play better than his opponent. Yeah. So, so he's like, there's two ways to do that. You know, I could play really well or I could bring their level down. So my level is just slightly better than theirs. Yeah. And I think also what I learned about coaching from that point of view is, yeah, you pretty much got to have your own game plan. But also, if you can take away two or three things from the opposition, and that's what we try to do at Sydney and Melbourne, yeah, you don't redefine mm-hmm. your whole game plan. That's what Brad's saying. But be aware of what your opposition, what do you want to take away? This, this, you know, we, we, if we can stop the two or three things that this other team does really well without disrupting what we do, it's going to flip itself on, the, on its head rather than just playing your own game constantly, 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 or just completely playing to the opposition. So it's a balance there. It's a real balance yep. around recognising what your opposition's good at, recognising what you're good at, and taking away their strengths without taking away your strengths. It's a good point you make about like you know, your coaching strategy. Did you have an idea about what type of coach you wanted to be when you became one? Were you player-centric? Were you system-centric? I'd formed some plans over the years, and I really wanted to... One of the things I could never understand, I was captain of Fitzroy, and then I went to Sydney as a senior player, 
I can never understand why the club never asked me what I wanted to achieve as a player. We're the guys that are out there. So I went into Sydney with a defined sort of game plan, which was a little bit looser because you're not really sure, but a, a lot of it came from a basketball background. I was always, you know, playing basketball. As soon as the opposition got it, one-on-one, man-to-man defence, get up on your man, transition, um, and that was my going to be my philosophy. As soon as we lose the ball at Sydney you get on your man as quickly as you can. And probably one of the most frustrating things from the media was we were seen as a flooding team and I could never work out. We, we, were, we were furthest from the truth. You know, our, our mandate was, you know, if we lose the ball, we get on our man straight away. And we try and get the ball back absolutely right there and then. And that came from <laughs> a basketball background of, of man on man. Yeah, as the ball goes up the field... And then, you know, then you, you get into drop into a bit of a zone defence as the ball 70 metres out or 80 metres out. Um, so philosophically, you know, I, I knew that. The other thing that really stuck out for me was it's one of the few games in the world, AFL, where it goes from contest to contest. Rugby league, you've either got the ball, you haven't got the ball. Rugby That's right. you've got the ball, you haven't got the ball. Basketball, you've got there's some a little bit of contest. Even the National Football League, soccer is a bit more of a keepings off game, you know, even though mm-hmm. it's in dispute. AFL's in dispute so often. Correct. So if you can't win That's your own I... ball, if you can't beat your opponent. So there's a huge focus on winning one-on-one contests and winning contested ball, et cetera, et cetera. And then from an empowerment point of view, how do we get the players more involved? You know, how do we how do they construct their football club? How, how do we get them to drive this football club? And take away the excuses from the players. This is not Ruzi's mm-hmm. culture. This is our culture. This is our football club. This is what we want to do. So, yeah, I had to define, and I had to present to the board at the end of 2002. It ended up being four or five hours. And just recently, I wrote a book about three years ago, and I rang my IT guy, Anthony Carl, and I said, Carly, have you still got that present? Because he, I, I've got no idea about IT, and he helped me put it together. And <laughs> he said, yeah, let me check. And he sent it through to me. It was fascinating to sort of see mm-hmm. what it really looked like. So, yeah, I had a defined um, game style and, and how I wanted to set the club up. Did I know it was going to be successful? <laughs> I'd be lying if I said <laughs> I did. But that's part of the process, right? Like, you know, you, you, know, like you don't really... Um... Yeah, you don't really know what the end goal is going to be. You just got to make sure that you're heading in the right direction, right? And hopefully you kind of achieve that goal along the way. And I think you've got to bring people with you. And and I say this too, like I couldn't have coached Melbourne had I not coached Sydney because Sydney was sort of the experiment. Mm-hmm. And here are my philosophies. I'm not sure they're going to work. And I had great help around me, unquestionably unbelievable help, but it worked. So then going to Melbourne, then you, I talk to people, it's a bit like climbing Everest, you know, you've never done it before. You sort of probably wander off the path and, you know, someone falls off the cliff, which is, which is shocking. It's a life and death situation. So I don't make light of it, but yeah, having coached and, and sort of got to Everest at Sydney, probably the most frustrating thing at Melbourne was guys. And I brought all the Sydney people with me. We know where we're going, come with us. You know, that was what was the mm-hmm. hardest thing. Whereas at Sydney, it was like, I'm actually not sure where I'm going. I hope these blokes come with me. <laughs> you know, and to their credit, they did. Shuey Maxfield was amazing. My assistant coaches, Andrew Island was fantastic. Richard Collis, um, you know, Miles Barron Hay, the CEO. But the second time around, the frustration's a little bit different because you know where you've been and you know how you're going to get there and you're just trying to bring people along. But first time around, just have a plan. Yeah, you know, have a plan, construct a plan, get people on board and try and keep people, all your people moving in the right direction. I remember we've had this short conversation before that, you know, like there's this... Uh- 
problem that everyone wants you know things to change immediately right you know you go into a football club everyone wants uh you know to go from 18 to the top of the ladder in one year but but it doesn't work that way and yeah you know, like i always think it's like you know the concept of like how do you eat a whale well one bite at a time like you know you gotta like slowly kind of change and then and then kind of get there in saying that when you were at sydney how did you deal with failure i mean and were there moments where you know like you you came up with a strategy and then later on realized and now i gotta change this because this is not working at all yeah, it's a good point. So when I first started Sydney, um, you know, I was lucky I had that sort of 10 weeks because I think that can be the hardest, most emotional part of as a leader. Like the game, you imagine game day because everyone gets more reactive. So I think the fact that I'd had the 10 weeks, we had a bit of confidence in the players. We'd won six, six games and lost four. And then I went into the construction phase of pre-season. So I knew what the players were mm-hmm. capable of. Relationships are huge, you know. So I, I implore everyone out there that's leaders: build relationships, build, build really strong relationships with your people. And then we went down to Coffs Harbour and we set, you know, really clear boundaries around, you know, what we wanted to stand for as an organisation. So again, do that. If you're not really clear about mm-hmm. what your behaviours are, you know, every, a lot of companies have a purpose and values, but don't live them and breathe them. Yeah, you know, we, yep. almost by design, work in the behaviours. What's what's the behaviour underneath honesty? Yeah, whatever that might look like. Mm-hmm. So be really clear on your culture code and then put your systems in place. So if you do that, then you're not spending a lot of time wandering around trying to work out why we won, why we lost. But it's still emotional. It's mm-hmm. still hard to get back to you know, where you are. But you've got to be really clear on, on how you want. And then there's the technical KPIs. You know, now, I'm not going to tell anyone how to sell a car or build a car or sell a shoe at mm-hmm. Nike, You know, whatever it is. But... The, the technical KPIs were really clear on at Sydney Swans. You know, tackle percentage, custom, contested ball. And if we married our te- technical side with our behavioural side, that's when we came. So if you're not really clear on both of those, you're going to wander yeah. around trying to work out what the hell is going on every every single week or every month. You know, we've made budget, we haven't mm-hmm. made budget. Why have we, why haven't we? So I think what we constructed at Sydney was real clarity for our players. And that really, really helped. So then when you're going through the tough times, it's a lot easier to, to organise what is going wrong. Guys, we're not winning contested ball. Guys, we're, we're not tackling, we're not keeping teams, blah, blah, blah. Or we're not living our doctrine. We're not, we're not living the blood's culture, you know, playing your role, you know. So you're always able to get back to it. And I think that's what I see in the corporate world a lot is we haven't defined our culture code. We haven't put a system mm-hmm. in of reward and challenge. We haven't built strong relationships so we can have honest conversations. And then we wander around when things don't go well and we can't understand why they don't go well. Yeah, and I think it's 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 important, you know, you talk about kind of the bloods culture and, and yeah, you know, one of the stories you told me which I quite liked was um, you know, maybe we don't need to name the player, well I'll leave it up to you. But <laughs> yeah, like you kind of created this like aspect where if every all the players buy in and you're really clear on what behaviors you want players to exhibit, you know, on and off the field. Uh, then it's really clear for players to kind of judge themselves and go, well, you know, the club values these 10 behaviors. You know, I'm scoring four out of five on these and I'm failing on the other four or five. And so eventually the player goes, well, is this the type of culture I want to be in or do I want to go elsewhere, which, you know, where I'm not judged on the five that I'm missing. I'm just only judged on the five that I'm doing. And so it, so it becomes like, I think, a self-perpetuating kind of thing where players go, you know, like these are the rules. They're pretty clear about them. You know, they're pretty clear for a number of years. I'm not meeting them. Maybe I'm I gotta go because this seems to be working for them, but it's not working for me. Hundred percent. I, I talk about it all the time. If you know what the system is and you're really clear, and support is a big part of it. 
You know, so it's not sink or swim. It's support the person, support the player. You act your way in or you act your way out. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions I get asked, was it hard to give players the, the flick at the end of the year? 90% of them know because of your what you said. We, we'd given them so much feedback. We'd given them a template around what made them successful. And then it's up to them to act their way in and act their way out. And we supported them. We supported them around mm-hmm. what it looks like. And again, it's not one strike and you're out. It's like, here's the system. Here's the support mechanism. So nine out of 10 would sit in, at the end of the year. And, and they they showed you through their actions. I'm sure there's some players that I kept for too long that must go, I can't believe Ruzi kept you for so long. Like, what an idiot. Like, <laughs> the hardest ones, and this is where it becomes really difficult in a sporting sense, are the ones that just, in terms of the culture code, the Bloods culture, you know, or when we did it at Melbourne, that did everything they possibly could to be a good player, but there's a technical component, there's a skill level around it. That was really mm-hmm. difficult, that they just couldn't meet the technical or skill component. That was hard. That was really hard to then sit and look them in the eye, knowing they've done everything right, turned up the training, played their role, you know, did everything they possibly could, off-season, didn't put a foot wrong, and then you still had to get rid of them. That was really, really difficult. You said the key word in there, which is around feedback. And, and yeah, you're quite clear in a lot of the communication you make is how you have to have a... Uh, a component of feedback that has to be like, you know, quite consistent. Yeah, it has to be quite frequent. Yeah, there has to be a frequency component. There has to be how you do it. And and this is, I think, something that maybe sports organizations do a lot better than actual corporations do. Uh, You know, like in football, you know, you play a game on the weekend, then, you know, on Monday you have a review, on a Tuesday you have a review, on a Wednesday you have a review. And all the time you're kind of constructively getting to a point where you had a, you know, like a okay game or not an okay game. Let's talk about what was not okay. You know, like now let's work on it at practice and on, you know, in the middle of the week. And then let's see how you can kind of implement those things in the next game and see how you can kind of like improve along the way. Yeah, I just don't understand it. Like I... Yeah, having been in a system for 40 years of accountability and, and feedback... And to, and to be honest, some of the feedback I got um, from some of the coaches was pretty direct and probably didn't serve me that well. But, it, but again, it was, I knew, I knew it always came, and this is, I knew it always came from the right place. I knew when Wolsey was giving me a cook yeah. or Parker was giving me a cook or it, it wasn't like they wanted me to be bad. And I knew where it came from. So that's probably the thing that I don't understand in the corporate world sometimes is why don't we want to give people feedback and why don't we want to receive feedback? Don't we want that person to be better individually and don't we want to be collectively better? But equally, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a framework for it. We actually don't know how to give it. We've no. never established a culture code. I remember having a meeting with a recently one of the biggest companies in Australia and the guy said to me, really good guy, he said, yeah, Rusey, we, we sometimes we give feedback every six months, but you're right. We, and I'm sitting there going, this is unbelievable. How do you think people are going to get better when your feedback mechanism is so loose? But again, it gets back to your culture code. Have you established your culture code? What are your mechanisms? Of, and a lot of feedback's around positive stuff. Let, let's let's mm-hmm. get our head around that as well. It's not just about what we do wrong. You know, most people do most things right most of the time. We don't want to reward them for well done. Thanks very much. That was awesome. So the more positive yeah. feedback you get, then what I've got to give a little bit of constructive criticism. It's not, oh, here comes Ruzi again. All he, when he, the only time he talks to me is when he's bagging me. Oh, thanks, Ruzi. I really appreciate that. You know, I, I didn't pick that up yesterday in the meeting. I really appreciate it. But if all the time we're just giving negative feedback. So feedback is feedback. Well done. That is feedback. 
Thanks very much for helping with that meeting. Thanks for jumping in yesterday. I was really struggling in that piece of taste. That is feedback, okay? But we have to teach people how to give, give it. It's a learned skill and it takes time. So build it into your networks, build it into your systems. So when we had this conversation, and I, you know, like I'll tell one story which you told me, which I find great about this. But yeah, in the corporate world, the the feedback mechanism is really an HR administrative task. You know, it's not set up to actually be this two way kind of conversation that you're talking about, right? Um, and and so the consequence of that ends up being is, you know, you know, like I was kind of thinking about this afterwards. Yeah, like if you're a football player, you, know, you play a game, you kind of get feedback during the game yes. from your leaders. You're getting feedback from your coaches at, you know, at all the breaks as well. Then you're getting feedback after the game. And then you're kind of getting an avenue to improve. You know, they go, you know, like, mate, you weren't tackling that much. You know, like, so let's practice that. And then you can implement that in the game uh, in next week. Well, I was thinking about it from like a corporate point of view. It's like, you know, like I start in a company on day one, uh, you know, like I do something, I don't get any feedback. You know, I do the same thing on day 10, I don't get any feedback. You know, like day 100, you know, day 200. Then one year down the road, I'm now getting feedback, but I have done something for 365 days and I think I'm killing it. You know, I'm a 10 out of 10. And then you get feedback, oh, actually you're a two out of 10. Yeah. You know, that is like complete, like it destroys my world yeah. because I go, well, what, what are you talking about? Like, you know, for a year, I thought I was killing it, man. Like, yeah, I was the best employee there. They're like, no, you're right at the bottom of the pile. Like that, that would be the worst way to give feedback, right? Well, 100% agree. But you know, even worse than that, how, where do you learn your actions from? The leaders. So all you're doing, <laughs> all you're doing is acting your way into their system. So we, when we do a workshop, I love it. So we'll, we'll sit there. And one of the most, the simplest things that we can identify, does the workshop start on time? Okay. And I guarantee if it doesn't, it's because the leader, the first meeting we go to, the leader's late. So then the second meeting I turn up early again. What happens by the third meeting? I turn up five minutes late. So the behaviours you exhibit to get you to a two out of 10 defines their culture. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you, I mean, you're basically mimicking the culture that 100%. you're being exhibited to, right? 100%. So all you're doing, and one of the things we talk to our clients about all the time is ask the newest person. You can't fake culture. So ask the newest person when they walk into the organisation, when they're one or two weeks in, how is our culture? They're not going to mm-hmm. recite the HR manual or the you know, when the CEO hired them and said, these are our values and it's our purpose. They're going to talk about the actions. People were courteous. Geez, people are always on time. People got back to my emails. People always return the phone call. That's your culture. It's your actions and mm-hmm. behaviours. Or, well, to be honest, no one says hello to me. No one turns up on time. That's your culture. It's like it's funny that that's right. We try and bluff people about our culture. Oh, you know, culture is great, and you know, I, I can tell you some horror stories, not necessarily in workshops, because, um, but but we've all got horror stories when we see an ad on television and we go oh, that company looks pretty good. And then we work with that company, yeah, whatever we're doing, whether that's buying a car or whether that's buying a pair of shoes or going, and we realised that's absolute garbage. This, the experience of <laughs> that right. couldn't be further from what that little ad says or whatever. And that's right. That's the culture. Ultimately, the culture is the actions and the behaviours of the people. So you're right. For you not to get feedback for 12 months, a is wrong because it doesn't help you, but B, all it does is you in, indoctrinate you into their culture and then they're admonishing you for being indoctrinated into their culture. 
think how silly that is. Yeah, it's like a complete, um, you know, misunderstanding of where you want to be and yeah. uh, and where you want to go, right? Like, yeah, it's like, well, I like, you know, I didn't get here because uh, I wanted to get here. I got here because, you know, like there was no feedback or I just mimicked whatever I saw. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, so half of the time, like, you know, when people kind of complain about stuff, they go, oh, man, you know, like we're not doing well this year. We haven't trended the right way. And it's like, okay, well, you know, like what behaviors did we exhibit to get here? Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the, the key things I think are quite like uh you know when you kind of talk about culture is focus on behavior because that's tangible you can observe behavior you can identify behavior you know uh, if a company says you know like uh, one of our core values is integrity it's like fantastic what does that mean yeah. like you know like what what what's step two like you know like so what behaviors do we think are you know along the lines of integrity and what behaviors are not along the lines of integrity and let's document those because that we can observe can you see it we talk about this all the time can you see it what does integrity look like what's the actions under integrity and i think it's simon sinek that talks about the scoreboard being wrong and he talks about it he says we reward people for the wrong things we actually should be mm-hmm. rewarding them for their behaviours if we're, we're talking about culture. So 50% of your bonus will come from X, Y, and Z, the behaviours underneath. You know? yeah. But what we do is we tend to reward people for sales. So we're actually doubling up. Potentially our best salesperson has got the worst values, but the economy is great. <laughs> you know, our product just seems to be flying off the shelves. And we're actually not only not admonishing him for those bad behaviours, we're rewarding him for those bad behaviours. And Simon Sinek talks about it. The scoreboard in the corporate world is effectively wrong at times. And it's the ones that really have tightened that up and said, no, no, we're going to readjust the scoreboard because we really are serious about our culture. And we're starting to reward people on, you know, whether it's 50% or 40 whatever it is, but we're actually going to take our behaviours and our actions as part of our reward mechanism when we when when we're handing out our bonuses. That's that's a much better system. That's right, and I think it's like you know I think one of the malaise is kind of the corporate world of having metrics, right? Because like you know like sales is an easier metric yeah, than maybe exactly. behavior is. I, I always joke that you know like sales can be put on a spreadsheet, yeah. like you know behavior can't. So hence like you know corporations obviously gravitate towards things that can be easily you know, like understood or uh, uh, like, you know, documented. But it's like, well, behavior, like, you know, we, we got we to gotta use a little bit more insight in how we actually do that. Hence, it becomes a lot, lot harder problem to do. Yeah, there's a stat that I read not long ago, and we talked about a performance by design. I think it's 90-something percent of CEOs believes culture is more important than strategy. But 74% of those same CEOs put strategy ahead because we we still don't know how Correct. to find it. But you're right, it's easier to put up a spreadsheet or put up our stock price or you know, P&L or whatever it is than it is to say, what is culture? Yeah, we systemize mm-hmm. culture and that's probably the thing that we talk about a, a lot. How do you take the chance out of culture? Systemize your culture and then you start to reward people on that. But I think we all agree it's important, but it's just easier to go back to strategy because we can see strategy um, and it's a little bit more definable. The story that I want to tell about feedback was when you're telling me, uh, you know, like when you were in media, you know, working on Fox footy and you're kind of talking about, uh, you know, like you guys would do a show weekly and you would go to the producers and you'd go like, how was the show? Like, you know, how did it go? And, you know, the producer's like, yeah, great. 
Yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, at the end of the season, they're like, actually, yeah, here's all the things that didn't work this season. And you're like, how come you guys didn't tell us that? Like, during, like, yeah, after each show, we could have fixed it along the way. And they're like, oh, well, we don't give you feedback at the end of the show. We give you feedback at the end of the season. And it's like, yeah, that I think was like a classic example of kind of the corporate versus, you know, like the football or the sports organization world where it goes, well, actually, how do we do consistent feedback versus this HR process of feedback or something like that. Yeah, and I think you touched on it. It's like a learned skill. So when you get in a, an environment, say, yeah, whether it's Fox Footy, I did some work for Triple M for a while. So as footballers, we're just used to feedback. You know, we, we're not offended by it. It's just part of how we get better. And it was funny, I did a two-week stint on Triple M, the morning breakfast show. And I said, oh, what time will I turn up? And I said, oh, I just get in there 10 minutes before. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, fine. So we went in there and they ran through stuff. And again, this is not a criticism. This is just more the difference around what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. And then I ran into the, I don't know what, what their titles were and uh, afterwards and he came up and said, oh, well, I said, mate, do you want to have a coffee? I wouldn't mind, you know, catching up with you. I said, and I asked him about what they normally do. Oh, no, we don't really normally dissect the show sort of thing. And I'm sort of like, but again, it's it's sort of what, you talked about the habit. The habit when you're in football is you constantly review and you constantly want to get better and you constantly want to improve. When I get into these other environments, you know, you're craving the still the feedback because you want to improve as much as you can and you're just not getting it. But then you realise that's not the system that they've been in and they're a little bit in, intimidated by having, not, not intimidated, but they're just not used to giving feedback. So it's, so it's, mm-hmm. it's fairly, it's just different. So when you see the worlds colliding, I just go, mate, let's have a coffee. Just tell me, what did I do well? What did I not do well? And, and you can see them mm-hmm. always taking a deep breath going, actually, this is pretty cool. I, and I don't get offended. But again, it's a learned skill and it's something people have to practice. Uh, but too often we sort of yeah, leave that to chance and we let people guess. And it's, I, don't, I just don't think it's fair on people. If you're a leader, if you're doing uh, feedback once a year, like, you know, proper systematic feedback once a year, I mean, like your rate of learning is going to be pretty slow. Yeah. yeah, you're a leader for five years. You know, you've done, you have five opportunities to learn. So, you know, so like you say that in the fact that it's a learned skill, so you, so you are going to have to practice it. And sometimes you might get it wrong, but, you know, the overall part is the more you do, the better you should get at. And then you get feedback on, well, actually, how did my employees actually interact when I gave them? You know, like this guy hates me now, so maybe I shouldn't use that method and I got to use another method and then go from that. It's also right time, right way, right place, you know, like, and, mm-hmm. and, and give the feedback from the heart. That's what I talk about. Give the feedback because you care about someone. I care about you. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm giving, do you mind? And it's the way you give it. Do you mind if I give you feedback? Yeah, you know, don't wait for the informal, because let me tell you the day, the, the, the formal feedback. You're the boss, you've got to give feedback. It's going to be the worst day of my life. You know, I've got to give feedback all day. Well, what do you think other people are thinking as well? Yeah, you know, I'm talking to Tammy. I'm on the way to work. Oh, Tammy, I got feedback today. Oh, how are you feeling? Nah, feeling shit. You're feeling shit. I'm feeling shit because it becomes this built up as opposed to you walking into my office and going, Rizzy, do you mind if I give you a bit of feedback? Mate, no worries. Fantastic. Look, mm-hmm. what you did yesterday was fantastic. Can I, well done. That was, that was really, really good. Just a suggestion though, you know, when you did this, I reckon there's probably a better way. Oh, mate. So see the difference, communicate. One, we're just so stressed out because we've got our six-month 
feedback process in place and it's like that's why i'm stressed out you're stressed out everyone's stressed out i know it's like a it's like a walkway to death row right like you're two people that are both sitting on the same same side of the fence and then guess what i remember the negative stuff that's all i remember yeah and also psychologically you think it's a negative uh like feeling right you don't like that yeah. feeling. so you, like yeah like do you really want to go and do it again hell no I, yeah like I, I hated the last time why would i do it this time exactly one of the other things you talk about feedback is around the trust as well so and i think that's that, that kind of comes through as well is that you know like if you do it the way you're kind of talking about your mechanism you know like the ultimate goal is to kind of build that trust so the person you know doesn't feel like they're about to walk uh you know death row every time you know you say do you want some feedback uh, yeah, and how do you kind of engage that as well? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how do you build trust? I mean, trust is for us is about character, competence, and care. Yeah, so you build trust because you're competent at what you do. You build trust because under pressure, you put the team first, and you build trust because you care about the people you're working with. All right, there, there are three mm-hmm. really big components of, of building trust. So if you if you can do that, yeah, and if let's let's take each three components. You know, like the component of um, the technical side, you know, are you competent at your job? If you're not, then just help them. You know, then maybe they need some more training, you know, a bit more IT work, a marketing conference, et cetera, et cetera. If it's a character mm-hmm. component, you know, what are the expectations? What, what is our culture code? Yep. Explain to them, this is what we do at the Sydney Swans Footy Club. You know, if you want to mm-hmm. come in here from a, from a character point of view, we put the team first, we do this, we do that, we explain that. The care point of view is building relationships. You know, like often we have conflict with people we don't really know very well, okay? Why? Because we don't understand them. We do a lot of profiling at uh, Performance by Design. Profiling is amazing, you know, understanding yourself Mm -hmm. and understanding others. Do the profiling. What makes you tick? How do I communicate with you? Now I understand how we can communicate together. Now I understand. I'm going to start to care about. So we put those three, competence, character, and care. We put those three together and we build trust. That's how we build trust. Any one of those doesn't happen. That's when we start to break down and erode trust in footy club, netball club, you know, any any organization, it doesn't matter. So if we haven't got those three Mm -hmm. with each other and our leaders, that's when we start to erode trust. You're now actually taking this message to a lot of wider organizations rather than just football clubs. What's your general feeling? Like, you know, do you think that this is uh, something that kind of the, the corporate world does well? You know, like, how do you score them? Like, you know, are they kind of middle of the road? Are, are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Yeah, look, I mean, you got to look at the footy club has changed dramatically. So, yeah, for football world is, is just unbelievable. The way it's changed from a top-down approach and to relationships, to standards and to clarity and all that sort of stuff. So the footy clubs are still a long way ahead. But to be fair, we, we're seeing the change in the corporate world. You know, I think people want to build connection, want to build strong relationships. You know, the top-down leader doesn't work anymore. The leader that's going to yell and scream and carry on like mm-hmm. a lunatic and, and tell, 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 tell. I think the other thing that, that leaders need to understand is you don't need to know everything. You, just because you're a CEO, and that's probably something I learned as a coach, Use your resources. You've got great resources. There's nothing wrong with saying, sorry, guys, I actually don't know that. I'll, I'll find out. And the other thing about leaders too is, is think about how leaders picked on an executive team. They're really technically good at what they do. Suddenly they become on the executive team and they've asked to stop doing. 
really difficult. Correct. And you mean I've got to stop being a marketing person? Yeah, you've got to manage this whole team. And that's the same as, as AFL in coaching. That's probably the greatest challenge in picking a coach because a coach is typically mm-hmm. an, an assistant coach who's who's got a incredibly important role, but a midfield role, you know, looks after 10 players individually. Suddenly you've got to elevate to getting out of the midfield role, to, to elevate to this leader. It's the same in the corporate world. So they're probably the biggest things we see. But, yeah, it's improving significantly and and certainly post the last sort of six months when we're coming out in this hybrid world, suddenly people have realised we've either got a really good culture and we've got to cement it, we're going to get our people back together, mm-hmm. or, gee, we didn't realise how bad our culture was. So just put yeah. – we just systemise it. But, yeah, it's, it's improving significantly. The good leaders have got really good empathy, build really good relationships – understand concepts around psychological safety and, and setting clear boundaries and helping their staff and supporting their staff. And yeah, we're seeing a significant improvement in that area. I mean, I think specifically in footy, you know, like that model of the head coach doesn't necessarily need to be the, you know, the best uh, strategist or anything like that. You know, they, they tend to now, I think they're kind of gravitating towards, you know, they're becoming better people manager, which is more like, you know, the Premier League kind of model. Like, you know, you have like the, the person that manages kind of the organization and then there's actually all the, the technical kind of staff underneath them that are doing all, everything that they kind of need to do. And I, and I think that, you know, like the football world, I think is kind of uh, uh, adopted that a lot quicker than, you know the corporate world the corporate world still goes you know you're the best you know whatever marketing salesperson you got to run the the marketing and sales department and it's like well actually this that person is not the best person to run the 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 department because you know what made him successful in their kind of day-to-day job is not necessarily what's going to make him successful in kind of the the management side yeah i agree 100 and and often that person doesn't want the role because they know they're they're not equipped for it because it's a fairly different role you know the the ability to sort of manage and, and construct a high-performing team, is it's not easy. I say this all the time, but leadership's not easy. If, if, if mm-hmm. 100% is not easy. And it takes a lot of – people ask me a lot, Do you, you're going to coach again. It's like having 44 kids. It really is because, you know, and that's where you're talking about. The leader has to employ really smart people, really good people, that are, that are able to do the, the job, do the work. Too many leaders stay down in the weeds and don't get above, you know, helicopter view of the organisation. And this is what I have mm-hmm. to do on a, a, a given, any given day. Um, so the ability to be able to do that is really, really important. But no one really sort of teaches leadership. We teach the technical skills really, really well. Again, the same in, same in football. And then suddenly we That's get to this position. So... A, if you're a leader, don't think you have to know everything. Self-awareness is incredibly important. Understanding yourself, understanding your team. What are my weaknesses? I'm going to put people in. I'm going to roll clarity is incredibly important as well. I'm going to put mm-hmm. people in that are really clear on what their roles are, and then I'm going to trust them to do their job, and I'm going to help them to do their job. And when they don't do their job, I'm going to question them as to why they're not. Can I help you anymore? Role clarity is completely underrated, not in a footy club, I, I, sorry, in a footy club as well as externally in a corporation. And that's why I love you go to a football match and you see a good AFL team, you watch it. It's like a helicopter view of a corporation. Is everyone playing that's the right. role? Is the leader there orchestrating, you know, quarter time when the coach comes down? The runner's going out and directing. That's what a corporation is. And everyone's not arguing, not bitching and moaning, giving feedback in real time. Yep. I can do that better. Adjusting as the as the two hours go across, 
and you look at the premiers, you know, whatever the premiers are, and you watch them play. Look at Melbourne this year. They've come off the back of a premiership. They're undefeated because they're really clear in their roles on the field. So if you look at your corporation, it's purely and simply the Melbourne Football Club at the moment. Is there clarity what the coach is doing? Is there clarity about what the system coach is doing? Is there clarity about every role on the on the, the, the ground and the people that make up the doctors, the medical staff, the runners, et cetera, et cetera? You can see it when you go and watch a really good team play. One of the things that I, th- I think is really good about AFL, you know, this doesn't always occur in all the leagues around the world, but for a large purpose, all of the clubs have really the same kind of resources, you know, like from a financial point of view and, and you know, they're limited by the way that the league is set up and the same with the draft and, uh, uh, you know, salary caps, you know, so they're limited in that sense. So, you know, so you have to kind of consider that, you know, the team that's first on the ladder, the team that's 18th on the ladder, for all intents and purposes, have roughly the same resources. So clearly one is optimized it as best as possible and the other is not well how come this club which got the same you know bag of apples for all intents and purposes is doing much better with that bag of apples than, than this club but clearly that's down to how the organization is run really 100 it's a great point so there's a salary cap and a draft we do have free agency now which is changing but you're right so basically the differentiating the system is set up so you can't stay at the top that's the way the afl set correct them up but if you look at sydney geelong yeah, you know, Hawthorne are rebounding a bit now. Sydney and Geelong, I think Sydney have missed the finals like twice in the last 20 something years. Geelong have done the same thing. They were the first two That's teams right. to set up the systems as they were. So you're 100% right. How are they doing it when the teams that have finished, the Giants are a great example. The Giants have been given as many young, as much young talent as ever been yep. given to any organization. So if you look at a talent and they haven't won a premiership. Yep. I think it was Matty Rendell, yep. who's an old teammate of mine who's in recruiting, might have said that as soon as the Suns and the Giants got set up, oh, they'll win, now I'm exaggerating, but they'll win 10 of the next 20 premierships. They've won none. They've won zero between That's right. them. Because your point around culture is right. What is Sydney and Geelong doing? And, and Richmond in recent times, and I've mentioned Hawthorne, yeah, West Coast, what I'm saying. So it's not unique, but, but you're 100% right. The secret source is culture. 100%. The secret source is culture. Yeah, there's a lot of people that say that the, the corporate world can't learn anything from the sports world, but I actually don't think that's true. I think that, you know, like that idea that if you, you know, you're all kind of on a level playing field and how do you outcompete your uh, competitors, essentially, you know, that's a lesson the corporate world should take on is that it's not about getting more resources. It's not about getting, you know, like all of these things. It's about optimizing what you kind of have and how better can you do that with culture and, and the softer skills and things like that. I absolutely see it. The, the, the companies that are committed to culture, and I won't mention names because I'm not going to betray any trust, but it's clear. Please don't, because we might get sued. Yeah, so yeah, let's, yeah. Keep, let's keep them out anyways. Yeah. Now, it's clear that the ones that are committed to the culture are by far the better organisations. It's so obvious when we... So you're 100% right, is commit to the process. It works. And I, I say that to people all the time. Commit to the process. Commit to the people. Commit to developing really clear systems around what your culture looks like. Don't get outcome-focused. Yeah, because things are going to go wrong at times. But I, I talk about talent-based teams and behavioural-based teams. Be a behavioural-based mm-hmm. team. 
and you'll continue. Yeah, you, you're still going to drop a little bit, and yeah, you know, whether it's the pandemic or the you know interest rates go up or whatever it is. I mean, th- there's always things that are external to the business, right? But to control everything that you can control as best as you can, and you know, like uh, if the pandemic comes, well, mate, like yeah, you know, nobody could have forecasted that. So yeah, you know, so that's going to be a hit to your business. But control what you can in that aspect. Yeah, look after your people and be really clear on what your culture is. And I think whether it's in the corporate world or whether it's in the sporting world, it's 100% right. The ones that are committed to their people and committed to their culture are unequivocally the best organisations. Now, when you look back, with the benefit of hindsight, what would you do differently? Probably as a player, I would have taken more notes. Um, I think that would have been really valuable, just you know, jotting some things down, as I was going through my career, I think I think I would have been a more selfless player, you know, because now I understand the the absolute notion of team. When when mm-hmm. when you're playing, yeah, even though as captain of Fitzroy, you're still fundamentally looking after yourself, and that's your responsibility. You know, I've got to get myself up every single week. So I always say to people, yep. if you can coach before you play, you're going to be a much better player. You know, yeah, but you clearly That's can't. Right. Clearly, you can't do that. So I think I think the other thing I would I'd probably sit down with my coaches a bit more and and sit down with David Parkin and Robert Walls and and have more conversations around. Well, what what did you mean by that? You know, you give me a spray on the weekend, and I I I, I know I deserved it, but what's the impact? What what are you seeing the impact? So so probably understanding more behind what the comment was you know i think that's probably something that i I would like as well um they're probably two of the main things when i look back on it you know two or three of the main Mm -hmm. things that i I look at and i wish i had done a little bit better so is this something that you think that you would um you know now with hindsight definitely do more of as as you were going down that path like yeah like the more i guess more the focus on relationships you know would you would you value would you have valued that more along that way as well I think I think we always had pretty strong relationships at Fitzroy and pretty strong relationships at at Sydney. Probably again, it's probably just the concept around team. I know it sounds silly, but yeah, you know, when I look back on it, and probably because Fitzroy was struggling a bit, and I probably started to focus too much on myself. You know, because when you're losing, you go well, and it's such a media-driven organisation. You know, like how can I be the best player this weekend? And I know it's a small thing because I think, yeah, when if you if you think you're playing really well, you think you're helping the team. But when I look back on that, mm-hmm. I probably did some things in games that were selfish, you know, and because I wasn't, yeah, okay. I wasn't thinking necessarily how can I help the team. I was thinking how can I be the best pl- possible player. Now, when I look back, I probably thought that was the way that I thought I could help the team. But I reckon if I had to switch my mindset saying, how can I help the team better in this quarter? How can I take, help the team better in this game? How can I help the team yeah, okay. better during this week? I think if I had more of a team focus, um, I might not have won as many individual awards, but potentially I would have had more team success because I would have understood by me doing something slightly differently might have impacted you know, another team member to think about the team, mm-hmm. another team member to think about the team, another team member to think about the team. Bit, so it'd be interesting to talk to my coaches and you know see did they think I was selfish at times? And I, I would think if they were honest, they'd say yeah. You know, I was a good player, and but maybe I was a bit too selfish. So 
that's probably one thing that I'd, if I had my time over again, I'd really have a think more about the actual team side of it rather than, mm-hmm. and again, when I make it clear, I don't think I did it. I think I did it to make the team better because I thought if I played better individually, our team would be yes. better. But was that really the case? Was it a case of me looking more at how can I help my teammates rather than how can I be the best team? How can I best be the best on the team? Particularly at Fitzroy, I think the perspective you have now is because you know how the the tale of Fitzroy ended as well. But you know, but when you're in the middle of it, you know, like that was an organization that like you didn't know which way it was going to go. Yeah, you know, like the you know there were days it seemed like the club was going to close, and like yeah, so 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 it's I I think it's actually probably okay to understand why players. Uh, in that setting might have become more selfish or more mercenary to go well you know like mate I got to do whatever I can to kind of see my career prolong and I always think it's really hard to know what the full impact of that is on you until you kind of go through the chapter and onto the other side and I think it helped me at Melbourne because Nathan Jones who was um, their best player by fair way and I remember it just helped me inside Nathan's head to think well, I know why he's playing the way he is because he thinks that's absolutely the way he needs to play to be the best player for this team and then for this team to be best. So having that experience myself as captain of Fitzroy and seeing what Nathan had been through allowed me to establish a really close connection with Nathan to explain to Nathan, and maybe that was talking to myself. Like I was almost talking to myself then going, Nathan, no, I need you to do this. And we had some really good conversations around that. So to your point... When I'm in it, you can't really see it. You don't really know what it mm-hmm. looks like, having been through it and then trying to coach Melbourne. And I think that allowed me to have a really strong connection with Nathan and change his philosophy around him having to be the best player every single week into playing a really important role for the team. And I think it made him a better player and made us a better footy club. Paul, obviously, you know, you're very passionate about leadership and management. Would you do it again? Would you take on another leadership position? I, I enjoy what I'm doing now. I love being, you know, with performance by design and, you know, imparting the wisdom and on, you know, because it's sort of trying to put an old head on young shoulders. And it's really, you know, mm-hmm. you asked me what I'd say to myself, you know, often when you're young, you don't listen to anyone, you know. So part of what I try and do now <laughs> is give experiences, tell stories, try and help people understand because unless you've lived and breathed it, it's often hard to to put it into actions and outcomes. So I really enjoy, I've enjoyed, yeah, I've been really fortunate. Went to Fitzroy as a 15-year-old, had an amazing experience, amazing leaders, Bernie Quinlan, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, Gary Wilson, and, you know, came up with Matty Rendell and Scotty Clayton and, you know, Gary Pert and Johnny Blakey and Alistair Lynch. So incredible experiences, yeah, I think now it's, yeah, I've had those experiences. I've enjoyed my time in footy. Um, I'm still doing some work at North Melbourne, more on the leadership capability with their exec teams and stuff like that. But I think it's, I now just enjoy imparting the wisdom and, and helping people. And if they want to be helped, I'm here to help them. If they don't want to be helped, then, then that's okay. They've got to go through their experiences themselves and people learn at a different rate. But trying to, I guess, trying to put old head on young shoulders is the best way I can describe what I'm trying to do now. Yeah, like I guess this is one of my kind of uh, bugbears is that I think, yeah, like in the the corporate world, we are often um, quite quick to, I think, move people on because, yeah. you know, maybe their technical skill set or, you know, particularly their skill set around technology, you know, depending on what industry you're in, you know, you go, you know, like it's it's now trying to teach an old dog new tri- tricks. So, you know, like we're, we're going to give this up. But I think what we 
fail to value is the softer skills yeah. that those guys uh, have picked up along the way or those people have picked up along the way. Uh, you know, like even though they're not kind of doing the technical job you want them to do at whatever level they are in the organization, but they have value in kind of imparting the softer skills to people around them. 100% right. And even It's funny, I think even the language we've got to change because when we talk about the softer skills or the little things, like it's funny and we catch ourselves as well. And even by that nature of, oh, it's just a little thing. Now, hang on. Is it? Is it a little thing? I know. The softer skills. Are they a softer skill or are they a skill that we actually really value? And I think. I know. Yeah, 100%. I think some of the things that we we collectively have to change the way we talk about things because you're 100% right. If If I'm starting a company or hiring a CEO or, you know, whatever, those softer skills around empathy and relationships and asking questions they are number one on my list absolutely number one Mm -hmm. on my list because i know now having been around for 40 years both footy in the corporate space they're invaluable that person Mm -hmm. will bring in the technical capability that person will bring in everyone together that person will support everyone it's the other one that completely forgets about the softer skills (laughs) that have got us into trouble, you know, and, and we look at the last two years and some of the things that have happened and, and we, you and I spoke about it, we won't go into it because we could take another hour to, to dissect it, but they've got no yep. soft skills, zero, because that's right. it's all about technical capability. We can all get take technical capability or acquire technical. So the, the person that wants to bring us all together, one of the great sayings I reckon is a rising tide lift all, lift all boats, you know, if we can start bringing people together, start lifting people up, well done, building relationships, taking people on the journey mm-hmm. with us and stop this divide and conquer mentality that's existed around the world. And particularly in Australia, we got to get out of that mindset. We got to pull people I back know. together. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Those people are incredibly invaluable and will become more invaluable um, as we're trying to dissect the next, you know, the next 12 months, 18 months, two years that is the human trait that you know like our ability to interact with people across kind of the spectrum you know like inevitably a lot of the technical stuff you know for for all intents and purposes will probably be taken over by some level of technology you know like we know that's the case you know like that's kind of it's going to go there so so i find it like fascinating that you know like organizations for all the money that they put into technical development and then you kind of look at how much money kind of goes into you know, the, the human development, I think. Uh, and you go, well, like, you know, clearly that's probably not a great trend if you're not kind of putting value in, in one side and only putting it on the technical side. And then, and then you wander around going, how did we end up getting here? Because yeah, exactly. you've spent no money on your people. You've spent no money on your culture. Yeah, you've got this amazing technical side of your business, but it's about your people. It's people will, I don't care whatever, whatever business it is, you know, most businesses are people business. So don't be surprised when you look around and go, Geez, how come we got a bad culture? How come no one's talking to each other? How come everyone's arguing? Everyone's pretty, really good at what they do, but no one yeah. really cares about this company as an organization. All they care about is what their job is, getting a paycheck, going home at night and, the, all the transactional things around is that what is that yeah is that the company we want to work for eventually no 
I guarantee. I mean, I think the younger generation is kind of voting in that sense, right? Like, you know, they want more meaning. They want more yeah. uh, connection to what they do. So, and I think that's just all part of being human. I mean, you mentioned like, you know, the people business. I remember this like, um, you know, Adam Simpson, you know, the West Coast yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, head coach, you know, he made this great point that, you know, like in West Coast, they, they kind of divide players coming in into three kind of lifestyle buckets. You know, so it's like the 18 to 25 year old lifestyle, which is all young kids. You know, they want to go to nightclubs, yeah, yeah. you know, they want to party hard they want to do this and you know and they put them together and then there's kind of the uh, players that are like you know mid-20s to late 20s which are all about going to brunches and instagram and going to fashion shows and all that stuff and then there's kind of the the group that's you know like 30 plus that have families and are settled and and yeah so you could have a player that comes in at 22 that goes into the family group but he's like but you know we realize that we can't actually treat an 18 year old that wants to party hard the same way as a 32 year old who has a family and, and a life and yeah like and i remember listening to that going yeah, like I work for an organization that has one HR policy that applies to everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's probably a bit of a faux pas, right? Like we probably need to have a ability to handle people that have kids and, you know, like all of their uh, outside work interests that, that combine. But we also got to recognize that, you know, the 22-year-old is probably going to go on a night out on a Thursday and probably going to come over slightly worse for wear, a little bit dusty on Friday. But we got to accept that, that that's where the lifestyle in there are. And, 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 and you know, we got to kind of cater our HR policy around those we can't just apply one rule to everyone across the board i'll never forget this i think it was my first pre-season at fitzroy and i was i was sort of 16 or 17 i remember we must have been training very well and there was 80 and to be fair wolsey there was bloody 80 players and he wouldn't have had a clue some of their names and he'd give us a cook and we ran in and he said something like you guys are all equal here and you'll i'll, I'll treat you equally and we'll pick the team first round i remember sitting there going I'm standing next to Bernie Quinlan. He's won a Brownlow medal and I'm equal to him. That does not make sense to me. And I understand, I sort of understood what he meant. But again, what Adam's saying is we have a set of values as an organisation and everyone's equal. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But around those, we have different people. You know, we, we, you've got to understand each individual and their different personalities. What makes every yeah. one of them tick? And I think the strength of the, of the Swans, and I suspect for what Adam's saying is, you know, if, if Leo Barry comes in and he's got to take his kids to, to school the next day because Sarah's crook and absolutely, you know, mate, yeah, absolutely. That's right. Like, yeah, mate, as long as you get in, I know it's a recovery session tomorrow, I'll let the, I'll let the players know, can, I'll let the leadership group know, um, and can you come in at Ruzi? Yeah, no, I'll come in at 2 o'clock. 100% because we've got to be respectful of, of now that's not to say I <laughs> know with Adam Simpson he just he wasn't happy because a lot of the players went to the nightclub when they shouldn't have just recently now that's not that's to say Adam's not going to kick someone's backside when they go against the team rules mm -hmm. and the team strategies but you're 100% right one of the things I wrote down in the 25 points on October 1998 is 44 senior players all individual personalities treat them individually 100%. And I think too often we have this one cap fits all policy. And again, getting, back, again, getting back to Bernie Quinlan, hang on, he's won a Brownlow medal, kicked 100 goals. I haven't played a senior game yet. You're telling me I'm the same as him? No, nah, don't expect me to believe that because I actually don't believe that. That's not true. 
I know. And this is what I mean about like kind of the motherhood statement and kind of the granularity. You know, like you understand the motherhood statement. We yeah. want to keep everyone equal. Yeah. But you also got to realize where the rubber meets the road, it's got to be a little bit different for everyone along the way as well. Yeah, and I think in, in your culture code, that's absolutely true. And I would say this, if you've got a player sitting here, mm-hmm. and I suspect Simo is the same, you know, in our culture code, 100%, you know, everyone's equal in doing these things. But around that... How we treat Adam Goods compared to how we treat Brett Kirk or Mickey O'Loughlin or Leo Barry or Stewie Maxfield is based around their circumstances at, at that particular time. I remember Teddy Richards. That's right. Ruzi, I've got an exam tomorrow. I know we've got main training. I said, mate, you got an exam? All right, we've got main training. What, what, what time's your exam? Mate, it's right in the middle. All right, let's just – okay, there's an example. We treat people, as, we treat people the way we, 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 they expect to be treated. He's got, he's got That's a right. life outside. He's, we want him to get an education. We want him to look out. So how do we deal with that scenario? And that's exactly what Simo's saying. It's a, it's a great point. Anyway, Paul, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but this has been great. Um, yeah, thanks a lot for joining us. It's, it's ex- excellent to get your insights in kind of the, you know, the diverse things you've done and, and you know, how you're kind of combining them together now um, in your company now, Performance by Design. I think it's excellent. No, mate, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. It's great we finally been able to do it. And, and catch up again. So thanks for having me. Appreciate it. This episode of Exploration Radio was brought to you by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford. Edited and produced by Sean Jeffrey and recorded remotely in May 2022. Exploration Radio is supported by the Australian Institute of Geoscientists, Minerals Council of Australia, the Society of Economic Geologists, One to One Group and the Assay and is an official media partner of the 2022 PDAC Conference. Until next time, let's keep exploring.